We are uh, in Romans for the next uh, two weeks. Uh, we have uh, some, some significant chunks to, uh, to address, uh, and so please bear with me. But I want to remind you that we are coming to the close of what started off as the illustration of the green beast, which is this 1973 door suburban at the farm in Wyoming that has been in various states of, uh, well, disrepair, and not only that, but disassembly for the better part of, oh gosh, 10, 12 years. And we made the analogy, I made the analogy, that Romans is often like that, that it is this wonderful vehicle to go just about anywhere you want to, and yet often it feels like Romans is left in various pieces. Romans 8 is sort of taken out of context, and that's one piece sitting over here, and we talk about it. And then there's uh, Romans 1, 2, and 3, and Paul's uh, great declarations, powerful declarations about sin and brokenness and, and the human reality. And so we take that part and we have it over here. And then some people take out chapters 9 through 11 and say, this is some weird thing about Jewish people, and we're not sure how it fits, and it can't be really, but somehow they're all going to come in later. And, and we find all of these aspects ripped out of their context. And in some ways... We agree that it should be taken apart, but only so that we understand it and can put it back together. Because if we only have one part of Romans and we forget what the whole is designed to be, we lose the power of what Paul wants for these people that he loves dearly in the Lord. And it is in that context that we started in verse six, uh, chapter 16 saying this is the diverse group of people that Paul wants to see unified in Christ, not in separate little communities, but in communities unified in Christ, not divided by differences of opinion or background or socioeconomic or religious or ethnic. But if you're divided at all, it's just because this is where my parish is and then your parish is in a different part of town. And those disparate congregations unified in Christ. And so now we get to, in verses uh, chapters 14 and 15 in particular, Paul bringing this green beast to life and driving it down the very practical roads in which we live. And there's nothing more practical than getting sideways with one another in the church over issues that are not insignificant, but ones that should not divide us. And so Paul is saying, if you have learned anything from chapters 1 through 13, it will make sense to you that now I expect you in Christ to be able to do these things. Not easily, not without effort, not without trials and tears and pain. Apparently Paul had a few of those in his life as well but you can do it in Christ. So that is where we are at. We are in a place where Paul is going to ask of us very hard things because of what he said we are in Christ and because of what he said is true about all those who have faith in Christ. They are not perfect people. They will sin. Abraham certainly did his fair share. 
And yet it wasn't Abraham's effort at perfection, but his faith in the power of God to redeem and restore and to fulfill all of his promises that was credited to him as righteousness. Paul knows he's asking us hard things, and I'll just make an allusion to this very quickly. If you look in chapter 15, verse 15, Paul says, I know I have written to you firmly on weighty matters. And I'm sure pastorally he wished he was there to unpack some of these very heavy and directive things. His pastoral concerns are not far from what he is thinking. This morning I want to read sections from this large section and then we'll go through it and I'll point to various paragraphs. But before we head into the the sermon itself, I'll read 14, 17 through 19, and then 15, 2 through 3. It'll hopefully create a bit of a, a structure for our sermon this morning. So verses 14, 17 through 19. Hear now God's word. For... The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. And then jumping over to chapter 15, verses 2 through 3. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the the reproach of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever is written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your abiding love and presence. We thank you for your generosity in sending your Son, making us co-heirs with Christ. And we thank you for the Spirit who labors in and with us, uniting us to you and to one another. May we again be refreshed in the wonderful Trinitarian reality of our existence. May we embody the power, the truth, and the love of Father, Son, and Spirit. And whatever is said this morning that is not true or useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. There are, in our culture, troubling, at least it appears to be troubling, given the uh, vehemence of some of the positions, uh, to, to structure speech in certain ways, right? So we talk about the challenges of the political correctness movement or uh, the, the, the new idea or at least the expressed new idea that many people talk about in the sense of, of feeling microaggressions. And then we talk about this in relationship to racial interactions and whether or not uh, people can in certain settings uh, without even knowing that they're doing it make people feel uncomfortable. And those are described as microaggressions. And then, uh, you know, in work, there's various kinds of sensitivity training to different populations within a working environment. And there is this whole move in the secular culture to be sensitive to these things. And it's not uncommon 
in the church to hear some concern about what is being dictated to us, about how we should talk or how we should think. Not surprisingly, I'm going to look at a passage like Romans 14 and 15 and think, well, of course secular people are going to do it wrong or badly, even if they have the right intentions, but Christians should have been modeling this a long time ago. The reality is that being sensitive to how I refer to another human being is something Paul is very adamant about. The first, if you will, indications that it matters how I identify other people, whether I treat them with the respect that comes from them being created in the image of God, regardless of whether they are my enemy or practice things that are from a biblical perspective, out of accord with God's creational design, I'm still not given a green light to use language which is dismissive or disrespectful of those people. Apparently, there are ways in which, and we have in this situation, uh, either Jewish folks who are coming to understand the implications of Christ's resurrection and recognizing that some of the cleanliness laws are no longer in full force, and that this resurrection Messiah covenantal understanding means that some of those things that made us unclean from a worship perspective are no longer in play, and that Christ has dealt with all of those, and so now we're all clean, and we don't have to worry about the good food that God has provided. But some of those folks, not surprisingly, are still struggling with what that means, I told the story that uh, one of my mom's good friends coming up out of Moody was uh, a Jewish man who'd become a Christian and become a pastor. And in the providence of God, he was single when he started his ministry in little Baptist churches in Iowa. And not surprisingly, his wonderful uh, congregation didn't want the single pastor to be alone on uh, Sunday afternoon. So they'd have him over for dinner, uh, Sunday lunch. And what do you think people in Iowa have often for Sunday lunch? A wonderful ham. And that man knew in his head that there was nothing unclean about eating that ham. And yet for him it was still difficult. Because he'd grown up the first 25 years of his life hearing that that was a filthy animal. And that it made you unclean. Now... Was that a purposeful act on that congregation's part to sort of put their pastor in an awkward position? No. But is there a sense in which we understand from Romans 14 and 15 that could be described as what the secular folks have defined as some microaggression, an insensitivity to the background that someone comes in? Apparently, it's not an unbiblical notion to be sensitive to things that may make somebody uncomfortable because of their past that in caring for them in love, we could be sensitive to those things. It wouldn't be a bad idea. It wouldn't be selling out to the secular world. It might be an application of living out the gospel. The idea that Paul here has to do sensitivity training. Do you understand where these folks are coming from? And those of you who are weak and those of you who are strong, do you understand? Will you walk a mile in the other person's shoe? See, the beauty of the gospel is that usually 
as we mine its depths, most of the things that the secular world, impacted by the Enlightenment and 2,000 years of Christianity, tries to do without truth, ends up badly, but they're hitting on common grace realities. And how much better then for those of us in the church to understand those deeper truths about what it means to love one another and love our enemies and realize that we too are called in fact, ordered by a king to do many of the things that the secular world is encouraging to do without love in the way that Christ loves us. And so in this section, we're going to look at the challenge, first, of judgment and disdain from the weaker and the stronger, which creates the willingness to use language that's inappropriate to create a sense of I'm better than you, which can feel like microaggression and the insensitivity to the needs of others. There is something Paul is warning about that lends the weaker towards judgment and the stronger towards a measure of disdain or a measure of uh, a distance, just not wanting to deal with the weaker. And then we're going to look at the other side of the coin, if you will, in the importance of discernment and discipleship. And then finally, hopefully a conclusion that will give us a couple of questions to to unpack. First of all, judgment and disdain. So what we can see in 14, 1 through 12 uh, is that there is a sense in which the weaker, in the midst of their struggling with what they've historically known to be moral, what they've historically known to be right, are struggling judging the Gentile believers who seem to be willy-nilly eating whatever they want. There's also some indication, perhaps, that there were some Gentiles who had gone through all of the horrible rites and services that are sometimes accompanied some of the pagan cults, And their own memories were so scarred by what they went through and how that meat had been, if you will, harvested, that they couldn't eat it either because it brought back all of the bad memories about what they'd experienced. So we don't really know. Broadly speaking, the weaker are probably mostly Jewish folks, but they might also be pagans or Gentiles coming from their own worship experiences and going, you don't want to know where that meat came from. I was there and I know what they did and I can't eat this because I have flashbacks. What we know is then that there is a tendency then that moment, and these are broad generalizations, but they're a generalization Paul makes, so I feel like I'm in somewhat cover, is that there's a tendency to judge. How can you do this? This isn't right. You don't know how perverse that service was, or you don't know what it means to set oneself apart as we have as Jewish folks for thousands of years. You can't discard that. You're turning our faith into something different. You're not being faithful. You're not orthodox. Now, it's hard to say in our life and in this culture what those things are. Could be worship wars, Whether you use an organ or not, whether you do praise, some of us are old enough to remember the worship wars. We were in the middle of any kind of war. We had a culture war. We had a worship war. It was uh, was a time of not much peace in the church. But 
But in the worship wars, you could get so excited about what color your hymnal was, whether the words had been changed in a hymn. And for some folks, it was deeply held because, gosh, it was the thing they grew up singing. And it meant church for them. And they had all good memories. And for other people, those exact same experiences, because of other things that had happened to them in some of those churches, everything that sounded traditional was like fingernails on a chalkboard, bringing up every bad experience and every time they felt they'd been judged or shunned or pushed out of the church. And it didn't seem relevant and it didn't seem important and it didn't seem worshipful and it didn't connect with their spirit. That's real. Just as someone love, you know, again, Anna's being gracious, and we're this is like the oldies but goodies. EC has good memories of being in the church. And those hymns we sung, I still imagine. Standing with my grandfather, seeing who could sing loudest among the boys because Carl made us sing loud. Apparently God, for Carl, had a hearing impairment. But so we were all supposed to sing very, very loud. And I know those hymns. They mean good things to me. That may not be your experience. And to be sensitive to a believer who's been wounded by maybe being in that same church that day, singing those hymns and being in a different place and having it crush them could happen. And for me, or you, or us as the body of Christ, to acknowledge that doesn't mean we never sing those hymns ever again. This isn't an either-or proposition. But the spirit is going to be one of discernment and discipleship wrapped up in a deep sense of love and care for the other, which I'm jumping ahead in the sermon. But what we know is we, as soon as we throw around judgment language, the right way to worship, oh my stars, you've already lost the fight. We've already claimed, if you will, the weaker ground when we're talking about a lot of these issues that are style and conscience, tradition, or culture. Perhaps there are other examples. This isn't talking about right or wrong. This isn't talking about instances like Paul does in chapter 1, where he delineates many things that are just sins. There's a different way in being gentle with sinners and restoring people, loving people with truth, how we do that well. Paul is in here no way suggesting that those things which are true should be denied or somehow downplayed. He is saying that an issue like this tradition, this reality of food or of worshiping and honoring certain days, that we need to be gentle. Now, pastorally, it is awkward, and this is why I think 15.5 says what it does about having said hard things. They're called weaker, which isn't flattering. But there is also weakness 
in the stronger. And that is to say that when we look at verses, uh, chapter 14, 13 through 23, we see that Paul is warning the stronger there not to arrogantly dismiss or distance themselves from the weaker. So as the weaker is running around and saying, this is a wrong and bad thing. And my understanding of the theology of the resurrection and scripture says it's not. I understand that you think it is, but it's not. And then after a couple of times of conversation, isn't it human nature to distance ourselves from one another? Maybe isolate myself in a strong church and, or isolate myself in a church, a weak church, if you will, that just gives me what I want, that connects with my musical style or the way the worship service is or fill in the blank on those things which shouldn't divide us, according to Paul, even if we disagree. And so the strong seem to in some way be tempted to become inconsiderate of the weaker. Just tell them to suck it up and grow up. It's just meat. Eat what's put before you. Apparently that's not okay. That even in caring for and even in knowing that that meat is not in itself tainted, that it may cause a brother or sister to stumble. And my job as a spiritually mature person is to be reducing the, the hurdles that I put in your way. Because all of us have one great stumbling block that we are regularly broken over, and that's Christ. The only stumbling block should be Christ. And he is challenging enough for my heart and my mind and my spirit to get around. And I regularly find myself broken when I encounter him again in the scriptures. That's the only thing that should break us. That's the only thing that should be an impediment to us heading in any direction is Christ and his words calling us back to the true path. But I shouldn't put barriers in your way as you follow Christ. That is Paul's concern in 14... Uh, 13 through 23. Does any of this matter? Is this Paul just saying stuff, and it, it's nice, and it's utopian, but it doesn't really matter because we're all saved by faith, by justification alone, and therefore, whether we actually pull any of this off doesn't matter, which wouldn't really work if it, because in verse 12 of chapter 14, Paul says this rather annoying thing. So then each of us will give an account to him, of himself to God. Now the quotes from last week when I had the wonderful surprise, if you remember, you have one of those worship folders, had a rather long quote on the front dealing with this particular issue. How is it that Paul, who just gave us the glory of Romans 8, can also say, by the way, God will judge. And that fits with Matthew 25, where there is a separation of the, church, the sheep and the goat, and that's Jesus telling us that. Do I know how that works? Does that mean I can lose my salvation? Does that mean that I can earn God's approval? No, but apparently what I do matters. 
And we can't put justification in the way as a barrier to it mattering whether or not I grow in Christ-like character and whether or not I'll be held accountable for whatever degree I consciously said, you know what, I don't care enough. I don't want to learn how to be nicer to that person. I don't know why they don't eat meat, but you know what, we're going to have meat every time they come over to my house until that person learns to eat meat. That may not be Christ-like. And I may be held accountable for that. I don't know how. I don't think it means I'll be thrown into hell. It certainly doesn't mean we should create a purgatory where I can work off that little indiscretion. But we were never meant to use justification by faith alone as a shield to deal with the reality that God cares about how you and I act when we love one another the way that we've been loved. And to gently hold one accountable. If Paul didn't believe it mattered, he would stop writing after chapter 8. Why bother writing 12, 13, 14, and 15 if none of this really matters and if God doesn't really care? I mean, sure, he has a kind of hope that we might be nice to each other, but don't worry, you're saved by grace. It doesn't matter. That can't be true. And so Paul, the author of Salvation by Faith Alone, says, by the way, remember what Jesus says in Matthew 25. And it does matter. It does. And we shouldn't then, of course, end up judging one another. And this is the great transition. This is the problem that we face. Is that human, broken, sinful people, me, will always be tempted to start judging other people's progress on the road of sanctification and decide whether or not you're good enough or worthy or all of the things. And Paul knows full well the dangers. And yet he encourages us not to judge one another because only Christ will judge. But instead, our job is not to judge one another, leave that to God, feel the weight of what that means, but now we are called to discernment and discipleship. Verse 6 of chapter 14. Give thanks to God for what He is doing. Since He gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honoring the Lord, gives thanks to God. And so, in my weakness or in my strength, if I am thanking God, we can come together on that. The weaker and the stronger are unified by thanking God for His provision by acknowledging that neither one of us either achieved enlightenment or, quite frankly, the food in front of us, if not by the grace of God. Therefore, we start by thanking God together. And then not only that, but we uh, look at verses 7 and 9, not living for ourselves, but unto the Lord. This is dying to ourselves. So how do I know if I'm heading down this road not towards self-justification, but towards loving people as Christ loved me. Well, he loved me, so he gave himself for me. And so is there a way in which in this interaction between weak and strong, as Paul will say in another place called Ephesians, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. Are you giving up of your own rights, privileges, to care for the other and your neighbor, to foster unity within the body of Christ. 
Not living for ourselves, but living unto the Lord. And to the degree that we find ourselves increasingly living for the Lord, it allows us to trust and to engage in a reciprocal respect and love that builds trust and unity, even when there is disagreement. Because the goal isn't to win. The goal isn't to win the argument about whether or not you should or shouldn't eat meat. The goal is to show the glory of God in unity as those two people fellowship together. The the goal is to bring glory to the Lord. So not living for ourselves, but unto the Lord. And then 15, chapter 1, bear with one another in one another's failings. And so that means staying in community. We're failing. We're bearing up one another. And there's discipleship because Paul's not saying that if you're weak, you should stay there. Or if you fail, you should just keep failing in sin. No, no, no. There's an assumption that there is a desire to grow in Christ-like character, to grow and unpack our understanding of what it means to be given the power of the Holy Spirit because all of this is done by the power of the Spirit who shows up regularly in chapter 14 and 15 as the means and strength by which this happens. And so we find ourselves delighting in one another because we are thanking God for what he gives us. We are living for the Lord and not for ourselves. And therefore, we can bear with one another in discipling one another forward because I'm not trying to fix you because you annoy me. I want to fix you because Romans 1 said, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it sets people free. And your sin enslaves you the same way my sin enslaves me. And we are called to disciple one another into freedom, not slavery. And in ever greater degrees, whether I do it well or badly, if there is that understanding that we are encouraging one another in our freedom for Christ, then the firm words that Paul says he said here, they are supposed to understand he said them because he loves them. And he wants them to know the same freedom in Christ that he is increasingly enjoying himself. Bear with one another in these failings, 15.1. And then gloriously, 14.22 and 23. I will read those for us. The faith that you have kept between yourselves and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts, it condemns if he eats because he eats, is because he eating not from faith. But whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Well, that sounds a little dark, but it's not. It's encouraging. What that means is that faith, faith in following God, faith that is humble in trusting in the things we can't see, sanctifies a lot. And so that weaker brother not eating meat is sanctified in doing so, and if pressed beyond their conscience and beyond their faith to eat, that in and of itself becomes both a sin for the one who forced it on them and the other stretching farther than God has enabled them. That growth is not instantaneous. And that Paul is here saying, your faith will guide you as you commune with God and his people 
at the pace that God has foreordained for you to grow. And don't let someone else tell you how fast you should grow. Which I'm really lousy at. I always figure I should be growing a lot faster than I am. But our conscience is not to be condemned because faith in what God is doing and has done holds us together. Conclusion. 15, 5 and 7. So, we have this amazing passage that says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with King Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another in Christ as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. If you have your bulletins, I encourage you to look at the front cover underneath Shehalem Valley Presbyterian Church is a vision statement, renewed by Christ, renewing one another, and renewing our community, Shehalem Valley and beyond. It comes from a passage like this, where we are renewed by the work of God in our lives, who has welcomed us and transforms our hearts, which gives us then the ability to encourage renewal among one another and to welcome one another into the process and the freedom to grow in Christ. And then to welcome others as God has welcomed us. So my encouragement questions. I should ask artists to stand up and go, well, what are the three questions that I should ask? But I, I wrote some down. In what way in your relationship with God are you trusting Him in faith to grow you? The question isn't whether you're weaker or stronger at any given moment. In comparison to our older brother, we're all weaker. I get hung up over all the wrong things. Do I trust God to grow me? And am I following him? In what ways is he calling me to grow? And then in what ways might I need to repent of how I have either judged others in my weakness or had a measure of disdain and superiority to those that I viewed as weaker. Chances are in the community of faith, as wonderful as CVP is, and this is a wonderful church, we're not immune to some of this. And when we lead with repentance, we find that God builds that trust that allows all of us to grow in his character and his nature. It is what holds us together, knowing that God's forgiveness, his honesty, his transparency, didn't drive us away from him, but brought us closer.
that can happen in our human relationships by the work of the Spirit as well. And it's what sets his people apart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and patience with your church. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your glory. We pray that in ever greater degrees, we would glorify you as you grow us. May we give praise to you alone that others might be drawn to the one who gives life. In Christ's name, amen.